The Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast features people from the real estate community sharing real stories about their struggles, pains, and even losses during their own real estate journey. We share these real experiences so you can learn from them and build a successful journey of your own. Now, here's your host, Cody Lewis, one of the managing partners at Vindu Capital, located in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you all here, but I'm even more excited to have our guest on today. She is the owner of High Rise Capital Group, Miss Emma Powell. Emma, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Listen, the pleasure is all mine. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation before we hit record. I think we we tried to solve a lot of parenting and like world problems, (laughs) uh, just in case anybody was wondering. I think we got pretty close on most of them. Yeah. Uh, But Emma, seriously, thank you for joining. I'm so excited to have you. Just in case people are seeing your face, hearing your voice for the first time, which hopefully not, and I doubt so, but just in case, we always love to start it out with a good origin story, where you're from, how you got into real estate, and what you're doing these days. Okay, so I spent 20 years growing up in Seattle, bounced around, lived abroad for a little bit, went to college, met my husband, and we got married, had our first baby in Idaho, where he grew up. His parents taught at that university. And then as soon as we got out of school, I think it was, we both had like an associate's degree at a tech degree. We moved to Austin, Texas to work in the tech industry. And while we lived there, we had a bunch more kids and uh, we both finished our bachelor's degrees. And I don't know, we thought after a while, we're like, Hey, we'd been in Austin for 20 years. We're like, Oh, we'll just make this place home. A couple of years before we had bought a little ranch and fixed it up and decided, eh, we're just going to stick around here. And we'd always been trying to move a little bit closer to family, you know, more of the Rocky Mountains or the West Coast. And then at the end of 2017, he got laid off. And it was kind of shocking because it was a company where he was one of the very early employees, like single digits in a tech startup. And he got laid off and we didn't know what we were going to do. And so we put out some calls and talked to recruiters and this Salt Lake City recruiter just went gangbusters on getting him interviews set up. And we just got nothing in any of the other cities we were looking at, including in Austin. So we moved up to Salt Lake City it just you know, on very, very short notice. It was a huge life upheaval. And when we had finally gotten to the point where we're like, okay, we're from Austin, we're going to stay here. So we sold our little ranch and moved up, moved up here. We had no debt and you know, we were renting. So we literally had no debt. And so I was able to take that cash that we made from the sale of that little ranch and just rethink my life. I was always business-minded. I had like a little cottage businesses. I have a degree in entrepreneurial management. And so I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to start a real estate business. Something I'd always wanted to do, but never really felt like we had enough money. And here we had some money in our pockets. And I said, well, we'll just keep renting for a few years while I start this, this real estate business. And we ended up buying a house pretty quickly, found a good deal. And I was able to just put a down payment on that and take the rest of it to go buy some more rental houses. And so I remember that first year when we first got to Salt Lake, I was like, wow, this is way more expensive up here to live here than it is in Austin. Like shocking difference, almost double on the house prices. And I remember telling my husband, I said, we're never going to be able to buy another house again. And that first 12 months, I ended up buying like five or six houses. And so it's just a matter of educating yourself, being around the right people and getting, getting the information you need to find where the good deals are. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, there are no good deals right now. Well, there aren't going to be good deals for a while. The, the current uncertainty that we're having has nothing to do with the real estate market. I mean, it's definitely affecting the real estate market, but I, I don't think from the economists that i pay attention to, we're going to see any kind of major, major dip. We're not going to be able to buy the dip this time around. If anything, it's going to be the opposite because of inflation. So I'm, I'm of the mindset that there are good deals all the time. 
And the way that you prepare for a downturn is making sure that the thing can cash flow and also making sure that you have a large emergency fund. And so we started our business kind of practicing that methodology. I always wanted to do commercial real estate. We bought a couple of houses because that's what we could buy. We didn't know how to buy the commercial, even though that's what we were shopping for. But then once we finally found our first commercial deal that worked, we looked at a bunch of them and obviously, you know, big, big, not work, not work. Either it was a bad deal or it was a good deal. And we just couldn't raise money. couldn't get the team together, just couldn't get the lending together. Just didn't know what we we're doing. So finally, the first one that actually came together, that law of the first deal, like they come together pretty quickly after that people know that you can close and they reach out and like, how do I do this? And then, so we kept buying a couple more multifamily properties over the next two years. And then last spring, you know, we put one under contract from my partner on an, on another one. He was a small non-managing general partner on that one. And it just ended up being like the biggest loss, you know, of, of my career at that point. And I had to take a step back and just, again, just like when we moved from Austin to Salt Lake, job loss and, and these things, I had to take another step back at that point of that big loss where lost you know tens of thousands of dollars and re-examine like what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is this matching up with my original goals? And coming up with the answers, no. And then how do I pivot to make sure that I haven't lost focus on the reason why I got into this stuff in the first place? Well, I absolutely love that. And and we're always a big fan of origin stories here. I, I love and think it's incredibly fascinating how everyone that we've had on the show has found their way into real estate. Some naturally are drawn to it through family and friends that they've been a part of their whole life, or some find it later in life and are studying and diligent and finding their way to do it. So wherever you are, I'm a big fan of if you're wanting to get into as long as you educate yourself, partner with the right people, you can get anything done in real estate. It, it, you know, it's not like you, you have to go to college or pass the real estate exam to, to get into it. You just need to know what you're doing or find somebody to help you know what you're doing and something like that. But am I, you, you mentioned a few of those I'm sure not everything's been perfect along the way. And you, like I said, you mentioned a couple of them there. What comes to mind today that can help educate our audience on maybe an unsuccess that you've experienced in your career to either help avoid it for them or at least educate on what to look out for? Well, going back to that emergency fund, a lot of people talk about how you can get into real estate with none of your own money, which is true. You definitely can, but where's the emergency fund? Where's the ability to save a deal that's going down the tubes when you can't make the monthly payment because it's not making as much rent as you thought, or it's vacant longer than you thought, or your renovation plan didn't go according to budget, whatever it is. Do you have any money to bail yourself out? And sometimes you can be digging yourself into a deeper hole if you have an emergency fund on the line of credit or a credit card, which is better than nothing. Get that credit before you need it. But the question is, if something goes wrong, what are you going to do? And people talk about burning the lifeboats to really motivate you to go and do hard things. But we're not talking about burning the lifeboat when you're trying to get in shape on January 1st. We're talking about something that could financially ruin you and your family. And I think that whole burn the lifeboats philosophy is flawed when you are putting this type of money and this type of risk into play. And so what I learned First of all, was if you're going to do a deal with a partner with no money, you better have some. And that partner with no money really should be awarded accordingly um, to the equity split that you have, even if he's doing all the work. If he's not putting any cash into the deal, or if he's unable to inject cash into the deal during a capital call, then that person doesn't get as much equity because People say, well, I'm putting in all the work or I'm putting in all the time. Well, the person who risks his time risks his time. And you can 
come and fight another day. The person who risks their money, it can set them back several years in their investing career. And so I know that people say time is more valuable than money, but in these types of businesses, the money holder gets extra equity. So that's what I learned. I think I, the only deals where I've really been burned are when my partners like literally had no money. They were scraping together just to get it done. And they're more like an employee. In that case, you can award them equity just like you would award an employee a salary, even though technically your partners, just being able to negotiate who is going to be the emergency fund to bail this thing out. And I gave my partners financial responsibilities that I knew they couldn't live up to. And then when they couldn't live up to it, I was left holding the bag financially because I was the one who was bringing cash and emergency cash into the deal and basically feeling like they had kind of run out on their obligations to me. Uh, when I was stupid to put them in that position in the first place, I should have just reduced their equity accordingly. Well, let me ask you, I mean, you, you talk about the idea of having that emergency fund and, and I'm sure at least hopefully our audience has heard that, that kind of sentiment before, but give me some examples of when you've actually had to pull from that emergency fund and, and what dictated being able to pull from that rather than the capital you had on it. I would say there are a couple of different forms of emergency fund that you can have. You can always go and raise raise debt notes. So we've done that on one project where we felt like the project could support the debt notes. We were just cash poor because we went into it without enough working capital, which is cash in the bank. There are other situations where I had purchased a house where it was a great deal, but I had to borrow, I got to get a cash advance on my credit card to pay the points to the hard money lender. And then because I was paying the hard money lender, there wasn't enough cash flow coming in from the entire portfolio because I think I only had three houses at that point to pay the, I could pay the lender, but I couldn't pay like the utilities or the contractors or things like that. So my husband with his W-2, he just paid the bills. I think it was about three months. And so, and that was coming out of our personal emergency fund and being injected into the deal as, what do you call it? Owner's contribution on our accounting. Mm -hmm. And another instance, because people talk about how cash is trash and it's it's losing value if you leave it in the bank and inflation. And so we got a couple of large life insurance policies where we can load them up with our liquidity and they're making a little bit of a return. I think it's you know three to five, depending on your policy. And then we can leave that in there as a little bit better form of liquidity. It beats average inflation of 3%, right? But the last you know year and a half, obviously we're behind on that, but it's better than if we had liquidity sitting in a bank. So think about the forms of liquidity and how you're holding it. So those life insurance policies are actually doing double duty for us because it is earning a small return and it gets to the point where those pol the, the policy, the little return you make is paying the policy premium every year. And so eventually you can pull out hundred percent of your capital you put in there and the policy can still support itself. But leaving the liquidity in there is nice because when I'm going to sign on a loan or be a credit partner, they're going to look at my source of liquidity and those life insurance policies are considered, are considered liquid because you can borrow against them. Uh, they have a cash value. And so for me, it's allowing me to go and do more business because as much net worth as I have, you need to hold about 10% of that liquid in order to be able to sign on loans. And so it's an emergency fund. It's a way to kind of compete with inflation to a certain extent. I mean, hyperinflation, obviously all bets are off, but it's also a way to be able to leverage that to go in to get into to more deals without any actual cash because you can sign on a loan and things like that. And so I think that that, that that lesson really taught us that we needed to beef up our emergency fund. And so we basically maxed out what we could put in those policies, which ended up being about a year's worth of income for my husband's W-2. And that helps us to feel just a lot more comfortable. And it also makes us uh, more marketable as, as credit partners. 
Well, I absolutely love that. I don't think we've ever had anybody talk about the different types of liquidity you can have. And as you get more sophisticated, how more sophisticated your liquidity can be, Mm -hmm. it doesn't literally have to be cash in a bank sitting somewhere, not doing anything for you. There's multiple different versions. So thank you for that. And I, and I would urge everyone to go back and listen to that part again, because there are a lot of golden nuggets in there. Emma, I want to shift just a little bit. You mentioned at, at the top of what you were talking about finding deals. And we all know it's really tough to find deals right now. With our little bit of time left, I, you mentioned you follow a couple of different economists. I'd love to pick your brain on what are the kind of your favorite economists to follow or ones people should maybe be listening to a little bit more as it is maybe tougher for some of us to find deals. I don't want people to think there's no deals to be had there. You definitely can find deals. You got to be very smart, make sure they cash flow. Maybe you have to hold on to them for a little bit longer, but where are some of your favorite places to and favorite people to listen to in that arena? any particular favorite people. I try to catch recent news on The Economist, either with a daily briefing, also the financial news like on NPR. So I guess, what is his name? Kai Rizdal. I love that name. Just the guests that they have on their shows or the articles that are written. Um, you know, I really do enjoy like the minority uh, mindset on YouTube. He's not an economist, but he does. He's a, you know, basically a full-time professional investor. So, and he introduces us to a lot of different types of people. So, and then there are the people like the rebel capitalists who are kind of out there philosophically, but have a little bit of a different viewpoint. I tried to stay away from niching myself into political philosophy. So left versus right. I I try to go mainstream. I try to go way out there and, and just trying to listen to a variety of voices. I mean, if you listen to what is it, you know, Harry Dent or Harvey Dent all the time, and you'd be depressed and you'd never buy anything again. If you listen to Peter Schiff all the time, you'd be depressed and never buy anything again. And so it's important to, it's important to have both viewpoints and then make decisions based on that. And the decision that I came to was, was keep moving forward with an emergency fund and a, and a bailout, a lifeboat fund. And so really what that ended up being on how to find deals, I think I was reading um, Hunter Thompson's book on how to raise capital and, and, or no, I was listening to him on a podcast and they were asking him how he found deals. He said, I don't look for deals to sponsor. He goes, I look for operators who then bring me deals and I raise capital for them. And I thought that's kind of what we're doing with our new investment club, which is what I pivoted to after we lost that deal. And I'm like, I don't really like being an asset manager and I don't really like hunting for new deals. I would rather put my money in as a limited partner And I would rather help raise capital for operators that I know and trust. And the deals that they bring me, I mean, our deal flow right now is so huge that we can't even get enough money to fund it all because most of the crap has been filtered out by these experienced operators. And of every dozen deals that we look at, we'll probably find two, three, four, maybe five of them that we actually like and would invest in had we the capital or could we raise the capital to do it. And so we're just getting a a much more filtered deal flow and it's a lot of fun to look at them because most of the time they're pretty good. And even the ones that we don't really like and don't want to invest in, they're not total garbage. They're just tight. Well, and, and that's interesting. I, I love the idea of the pivot. Everyone's got their niche. And I think finding your niche, especially in the market we are in right now, is probably the most important thing you can do. Really hone in on what you're really good at, especially mm-hmm. in the real estate realm, and just hammer yeah. that home because everyone's trying to do a little bit of everything, especially, like I said, especially in the market we're in now find your niche, stick to it, own it. And then when we get to a little bit better market from a buying perspective down the road, hopefully. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah, eventually. (laughs) Then you you can start to branch out. But for at least the short term, I love the idea of being niche, really honing in on what you're good at and leaning into that. So Emma, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's probably a good enough spot to wrap up. 
I want to remind folks, there are a lot of golden nuggets in here about a lot of different topics, not just unsuccess stories, but a lot of different things Emma talked about. So please go back and re-listen to this one. Don't listen always like I do at one and a half speed. You may need to listen at normal speed to this one. Uh, Emma, for those that maybe want to connect with you, work with you, learn from you in the future, where's the best place people can find you on the interwebs? I have a free investing, a commercial investing club that meets every Thursday. We'll probably be, I think we're switching it to Mondays here pretty soon. Every Thursday night where we get together and we just look at deals, we crunch deals. And if we want to invest in them, we can pool our own money. Or if we want to raise money from limited partners, we usually will negotiate a little piece of the GP to protect our pooled investment, which allows us to then go and raise a little bit extra money for limited partners. So it uh, really lowers the barrier of entry of getting into a deal. I think I raised like a hundred grand for the last deal that we did, but yet I still got into it because we pulled up with a group of people. So that club meets every Thursday. I think that's the best way to do like a group mentoring. It's very, very heavy on education and we get really nitty gritty and into the weeds on analyzing these deals. Also how to raise capital, the legal implications and the legal structures that we need to use. So it's, it's definitely a group that, that gets things done and actually does real deals together. So I would look at highrise.group. I have a spot there for active investors who want to join the club or passive investors who just want to put money in when we do find a deal. That's the best place. And if you go to highrise.group and slash contact, it has all the links to my social. I'm Emma Powell 28 in most places. Passive Income Adventures on Instagram. And that's a little bit more of the personal side of what we're, you know, what goals we're working on to, to become 100% passive in, income investors ourselves. So that's how you find me and would love to have you join in or reach out if you have any questions. And for those listening and watching, we're going to drop all those links in the show notes so you can have them instantly available to you. Emma, again, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure having you on and chatting with you today. Hey, it's a pleasure meeting you, Cody. Thanks for uh, having me on. I love the premise of the show where you can have be vulnerable about your failures and come back, bounce back to success. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And thank you everyone for listening and watching at home. We'll see everyone next time. You've been listening to the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast with Cody Lewis. Be sure to subscribe today on your favorite podcasting platform so you can catch every episode of the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast.